the last thing that you want to do is sour international relations by mistakenly invading a sunflower oil factory. Those poor people. Hey, I'm Karen, and together with my husband, I spent over a decade researching and learning and building our small farm through lots of trial and error, successes and failures. I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture to help our farm business, and now I wanna pass all that knowledge on to you. Because I firmly believe that self-reliance is empowering and that everyone, whether you've got a five-acre plot in the country, a half-acre lot in suburbia, or a windowless room in a downtown apartment, should just grow something. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. This is the June edition of Can You Dig It? This is Can You Dig It? Volume 3. So I know I said last week that we would continue with the second half of um, our discussion on preserving the harvest, but at that point, I didn't realize that the first Friday in June was coming up on us so quickly. Uh, I can't believe it's June, honestly. The way that our weather has been here with all of the rain and everything else, it really still felt like we were in April. So, and thankfully, finally, the uh, the rain has given us a little bit of a respite and we got um, a couple of days of really nice sunshine. And so right now we are scrambling to get what we can into the ground, our tomatoes, our peppers, all of our warm season stuff, all of the melons and everything else before the rain hits again in a couple of days. (laughs) So, but you know what, that's okay. I will take it. I have always said that I would rather have too much rain than not enough because we have been through droughts out here and those are absolutely way worse. So I think the only problem with so much rain is that inevitably we have areas that just get taken over by the weeds. Uh, And I'm sure a lot of you are probably facing this right now too. So you know, trust me, you are not alone. We are dealing with tons of weeds uh, out here right now and uh, trying to get all of our stuff in at the same time. And so it's, it, it often feels like in gardening that everything seems to need to happen all at once. You go from not doing much of anything to suddenly needing to do everything all at the same time because either the weather has done something funky or your watering hasn't been what it needed to be or whatever. There's so many different reasons. So you, you are not alone in those struggles. So, um, but anyway, we will get back to the second half of preserving the harvest next Friday. But first things first, I wanted to touch really quick on the new Patreon page for a minute uh, to help explain a little bit about what it is and then what it will do for this podcast. And in turn, what it would do for you. So Patreon, if you're not aware, is a site for patrons of creatives to support their favorite artists, their podcasts, their shows, and all kinds of other things, basically by making a monthly contribution. And that contribution is rewarded in kind with exclusive access to all kinds of goodies. And it's entirely up to the creator to determine what goodies they want to reward their patrons with. And this podcast is no exception. I won't dig too deep into each reward level, but as a quick overview, I will tell you the rewards range from access to 
exclusive patron content at the Patreon website and hotshot episodes that aren't available anywhere else to just grow something merchandise and video content all the way up to monthly virtual garden consulting with me and shout outs each episode. So there's all kinds of different levels. There's actually six different levels. If you love what I'm doing and would like to support the podcast financially for as little as $5 a month, go to patreon.com slash just grow something. That's P-A-T- R-E-O-N.com slash just grow something, or you can find the link in the show notes. Okay, so on to this month's Can You Dig It food news. So the first item of note uh, is the JBS cyber attack. And so if you don't know who JBS is, JBS is a Brazilian company who is the world's largest meat packer. And JBS controls about 23% of the slaughtering capacity for the U.S. cattle and hogs. Almost a quarter. That's a lot. So JBS sells beef and pork under the brand Swift, which you would see in uh, places like Costco. Costco carries their pork loins and their tenderloins. JBS also owns most of the chicken processor Pilgrim's Pride. And so you can actually find that brand and then their organic chicken under the Just Bear brand. What happened was a ransomware attack hit JBS. And so that disrupted meat production in North America and Australia. And it looks like that that cyber attack came from the same criminal organization based in Russia that shut down the colonial pipeline last month for several days. So the 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 attack on JBS happened at the beginning of the week, so that would have been Monday, and that hit Australian operations first, and then they halted cattle slaughter at all of their U.S. plants on Tuesday of uh, this week. So beef processing was down 22% from the week before, and pork processing was also affected, but I couldn't find any definite numbers or definitive numbers on the pork processing. So, of course, when you have a company who has that much of the share of the U.S. market, immediately beef prices went up. Uh, The USDA reported that prices for choice cuts of beef ticked up by a little over 1%. And of course, our beef and pork prices are already rising because China has increased their imports. And then like we talked about in uh, the episode where I talked about the FAO's food index reports, animal feed costs are going up. And then you have to add that to the fact that the slaughterhouses still don't have a full complement of workers after the pandemic. So that has slowed their production as well. So analysts were saying, you know, any impact or additional impact on consumers would depend on how long the plants were going to remain closed. It looked like their operations were back on track by Wednesday afternoon, Thursday morning at the latest which you would think, okay, so they were closed Tuesday and Wednesday in the U.S., and they were back to full operation probably by Thursday. 
why would that matter? Well, again, they are the largest meat packer in the world and they process 25, 23%, you know, so almost a quarter of the beef in this country and, and the pork. That's a lot. <laughs> and so one or two days actually does make a significant difference in the supply chain. And, you know, the summer months are already a time of higher demand for beef because, hey, it's grilling season. So what do you do as a consumer to sort of protect yourself or hedge your bets against the rising prices that are going to occur from this, at least temporarily? You know, and again, I'm always a proponent of shopping locally, but when it comes to your meat, try shopping with local producers. You know, they don't have the exposure to these types of things. They're not using these giant slaughterhouses. They're using their small local processors. And these local processors are generally less affected by things like this. Now, when during pandemic, um, when workers were getting sick, okay, that was a totally different story. But something like these JBS plants, the little guy isn't sending their stuff to JBS. They're they're taking it to their local processor and then they're selling direct to you. So not only can they absorb a little bit more than this, um, you know, than the big guys for a, a short amount of time, but you're also getting a one-on-one relationship with the person that uh, you're getting your meat from. And you can ask them the questions and find out how it was raised and, and all those sorts of things. So uh, JBS has gotten their act back together again and figured this out. But I tell you what, these hacking issues, I don't know, this is, this is happening more and more frequently. We feel like we're a little bit under attack here just as a country in general, and it's going to start affecting our food supply. So now is a really good time to be a gardener, I'm telling you. The second article that I found for this month was it's a little bit less food related. It's only food related because of the factory that was involved. But the the article headline reads, U.S. Army accidentally invades small sunflower oil factory. <laughs> yeah. So this was an article in Food and Wine, and I will place a link in the show notes. But last month, American soldiers who were doing training exercises in Bulgaria uh, on an airfield mistakenly left the airbase and efficiently maneuvered their way into the building next door, which would have been great if it had been empty but it wasn't. Instead, several armed members of the 173rd Airborne Brigade accidentally terrified the workers at a small sunflower oil factory in the middle of their workday. Oh boy. So the factory owner's son told CNN that the military has been conducting these training exercises at that base for over 10 years, and there's never been a situation like this before. So it was, you know, crazy that this happened. And unfortunately, neither the owner or his son were at the factory that day. The workers were there on their own. And I mean, can you imagine watching this later on from the security cameras and, and seeing these, you know, army soldiers storming your building and, and you know, guns waving and, and everything else and your poor workers freaking out? Now, of course, the Bulgarian president uh, is none too happy, and he called the incident absolutely unacceptable. 
due to the potential risk to Bulgarian citizens. And he says, and I quote, exercises in Bulgarian territory involving our allies should boost the sense of security and trust in collective defense instead of causing tension among Bulgarians. Yes, sir. I would agree with that. So it was confirmed that no weapons were fired at any time during this little invasion. And the U.S. Army, of course, sincerely apologized. And they said that they take training seriously and they they prioritize everybody's safety. And, uh, you know, they're going to learn from these exercises and they're going to investigate the cause of the mistake. And I can tell you, as a former military person somebody is getting their butt handed to them for this and they will absolutely make sure that it never happens again because the the last thing that you want to do is sour international relations by mistakenly invading a sunflower oil factory those poor people when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's not much better than looking out first thing on a sunny morning, gazing at my garden beds over a hot cup of coffee. As U.S. Marines, my husband and I drank a lot of coffee. As farmers, well, let's just say we should probably drink more water. The coffee we drink these days still has a military tie. We have freshly roasted coffee shipped to us every few weeks from Black Rifle Coffee Company. Black Rifle is a veteran-owned business, just like ours, but they serve up premium coffee and ship it around the world. When you join their coffee club, your chosen brew is roasted, packaged, and shipped free to your door on whatever schedule you choose. And with every purchase, they're giving back to military veterans and active duty, law enforcement, and first responders. Ready to check them out? Go to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash coffee to save 20% when you join the Black Rifle Coffee Club. No commitments. Cancel anytime. That's justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash coffee for 20% off your Coffee Club subscription. So let's dig into our listener questions for this Can You Dig It episode. We have one question that was sent in and one question from a listener that actually was at the farm stand. And just a reminder, if you send in a question, or I guess if you come see me in person and ask the question, and I have a way to get a hold of you, I will enter you into a drawing for a free Clyde's Garden Planner. So both of these individuals will be entered into that drawing, and I will pull it at the end of the episode. So the first question was sent in, and it was sent in by Jenna, and she says, My mom has always told me that I should put rocks or other chunky items in the bottoms of my pots before adding the soil to help the pots drain better. I've always done it, but now I'm thinking that's kind of weird. (laughs) Isn't that what the holes are for? So should I or shouldn't I? I love this question. Thank you, Jenna, because I too was taught by my mother and others that putting rocks or pebbles or broken clay pots at the bottom of a pot for drainage was a good idea. And 
This has been totally debunked by many university extension agencies and other science-minded people. It's a total gardening myth. In fact, you may actually do more harm than good if you do this in a pot that already has drainage holes. So I'm not going to dig too deep into the really technical details of capillary action versus gravity here, but I will do a hotshot episode over on the Patreon page to really get into the nitty gritty for those of you who want to become patrons and who really like the sciency part of it, um, which I absolutely do. Uh, but I will I will put a link in the show notes to a really good article uh, that kind of digs really deep into this. But essentially, water naturally flows to its lowest point due to the force of gravity, right? So if you pour water into an empty pot that has drainage holes in the bottom, okay, it's an empty pot. All that water is just going to go out the bottom. But if you put potting mix in and then you do that again, you pour the water into the pot, a lot of the water is going to drain out, but some of that is going to be retained. And that's good. A good quality potting soil will drain, but it will still retain enough water for the plant to be able to take up with its roots. And that's what we want. We want the excess water to drain away and we want the needed water to remain where the plant's roots can get to them. We don't want those plant roots sitting in that water, but the more absorbent your potting soil is, the greater its ability to wick up that water through capillary action. And so as it does that, the higher the water is going to rise upwards and the more water is going to be retained. So there is an area where these two forces sort of meet. You've got the gravitational pulling down of the water and the capillary action pulling upward. And this is called the perched water table. This is the equilibrium point, basically, where the water sits until the plant takes it up. Now, if this perched water table is too high, like when a plant is in a pot that's too small for its root zone, then the plant roots sit in this water until they can absorb it. And if that takes too long, well, then you start to get root rot. So what happens when you add a layer of rock to this situation? So if you're putting rock in the bottom of your pot and then you're putting your potting soil on top, you're reducing the volume of the potting soil in that container. In this way, you are effectively pushing that perched water table higher up into the pot. So that means that the roots of your plants are actually going to be sitting in more water, not less. It's actually not helping the drainage, it's hindering it. And not only are the roots more likely to be sitting in water all the time, but there's actually less space for those roots to expand because you've taken away some of the soil volume. It's been taken up by the rocks or the pebbles or whatever you've put in the bottom of the container. So essentially, it's a bad idea all around. Those drainage holes are there for a reason. They are there to let that excess water drain out while still allowing the potting soil to do its job by retaining enough moisture until that moisture dissipates either through the plant taking it up through their roots or through just regular old evaporation, depending on how hot it is out. 
Now, I will say there are some instances where rocks are a good idea. And this is specifically if you are planting in a container that doesn't have any drainage holes. I am always repurposing things around the farm as planting containers. And sometimes I have no way to create holes in the bottom of them, depending on what they're made out of. Sometimes it's concrete or some really thick steel. So in this instance, adding a layer of gravel or rock or broken clay pots or whatever will create a space at the bottom for the water to drain away from the soil and the roots. Because if there's no place for that water to go, right, it doesn't have any holes to drain out of, then having the rocks in the bottom in that instance helps elevate the soil and the roots away from standing water. But this really only works in very large containers with a large soil volume. So if you have containers and it seems like you need better drainage in them when they already have drainage holes, then try adding perlite to whatever your planting medium is. Perlite doesn't actively absorb moisture other than at its surface. So it's really effective at creating more airspace for water to run through. And it's also pH neutral. So it's not going to negatively affect your soil pH or change your soil pH. So if you find that you have containers that just don't seem to grow right or don't seem to drain right, um, then go ahead and add some additional perlite. Most potting soils are really already very effectively amended to where you've got enough airspace to where you're going to have good drainage. But oftentimes, if you are reusing potting soil or making your own blends, you may not get the ratios right, or it may be compacted after a certain amount of time. And so adding some perlite to that medium will actually help improve your drainage, but not adding rocks or clay or pebbles or anything else to the bottom. So thank you, Jenna, for that question. That was awesome. And it is a really, really common gardening myth. So the second question came from Teresa at our farm stand. And Teresa and her family are actually longtime members of our farm's CSA program. And I'm pretty sure they've been with us since the very first year. So, uh, And she's a listener of this podcast. So, hey, girl, hey. Anyway, Teresa asked about growing green onions. So I'll eventually do a full episode on both bulb onions and green onions, but Teresa was specifically interested in green onions, and, and here's what I told her. The absolute easiest way to grow green onions, in my experience, is to use the little bulbs that you get in the garden center or in the hardware store. They come in those little net bags of like 100 sets per bag, and that's what we call those, those bulbs. They're called sets. These can be planted at about an inch apart and will give you green onions in as quickly as 30 days. You can choose at that point you can to harvest the whole thing or you can clip just what you need and continue to harvest from them all season long. These little guys can basically be placed just about anywhere in your garden. We interplant these all over the place in between lettuces or any other leafy green all along the edges of tomato beds. Um, they do need full sun but they don't need a whole lot of special care. No fertilizer, no nothing. As a matter of fact, I have grown them in a drought where they got no water after just the initial water they got when they were being planted, and they grew just fine. Super hardy, totally low maintenance, cheap to get in the gardening center, 
And like I said, those bags contain like a hundred of them and uh, you can plant them just about everywhere. Now, in some areas, these little sets will actually form full bulbs eventually, but in other areas, they will only produce green onions. This is dependent on your latitude and whether or not the sets you bought are long day or short day onions. And unfortunately, they don't ever label those things to say whether they are long day or short day or intermediate day. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's exactly why I'm going to do a full episode on onions because it's a long, complicated discussion and it took me a really long time to figure out what all of that meant. So we will totally dig deep into onions at a later date, but just know that for for most people and most areas, that's a really easy way to just do them as green onions. Now you can also do green onions from seed if you prepare a little bit ahead of time. So they're often referred to as scallions and they can be either directly sown into the garden or into containers, or you can start them indoors and then transplant them. So if you're going to direct sow them, sow the seeds in, if you're doing it in an in-ground space, in a two-inch wide band, about a quarter inch to a half inch deep, and do those bands in rows about 12 to 18 inches apart. And then after the seedlings pop up, then go ahead and thin them down to about one plant every inch or so. So if you're doing green onions from seed in a raised bed, you can do the same thing depending on the size of your bed. You can just sort of sprinkle them in a two inch wide row about 12 to 18 inches apart uh, from the next row over and then bury them about, you know, a quarter of an inch or a half an inch or so under the soil and then thin them out when they come up. Now, if you are in a smaller space, say in just individual pots, then I would just broadcast seed them, just sort of sprinkle them evenly like you would like if you're sprinkling salt, you know, on to season a dish and then cover them with the dirt. And then when they sprout, go ahead and thin them out that way. You can literally grow these pretty much anywhere. You can also do these early on indoors to transplant them. So you plant the seeds indoors about a month or so before you want to plant them outside. So you can get an earlier jump on if, if you need to. Uh, again, sow them about a quarter to a half inch deep. You can do these just in a seedling tray. You don't have to be in individual little containers. Just make sure you keep the soil evenly moist until they germinate. And then when you're ready to transplant them in the garden, just dig a narrow trench about two inches deep and then loosen the plants up in their, in their trays to separate them. And then trim the roots to about a half an inch or so, and then cut the tops back to about four inches. This kind of gives them a little bit of a, a boost uh, to to get them uh, their greenery really kind of going. And then just plate those transplants into the trench uh, about an inch apart and then fill it up with soil. The only difference with these ones done from seed is it's really important to keep them very well weeded. At this stage of the game, the ones that are grown from seed are going to be, you know, fairly small. They don't compete well 
when they're done from seed like this, because essentially these are first year onions. Those sets that you buy that look like little mini bulbs have already been through this stage. So they don't have to worry as much about being really well weeded, but you know, the, these ones from seed, you're absolutely going to make sure that you keep them weed free and they're going to need about an inch of water a week for proper growth. So let them grow and then just pull them when they're about the size that you want to use them at. You may need to loosen the soil a little bit around them before pulling them. Otherwise, they will kind of like break off at the soil line. Um, but other than that, you know, they're they're fairly straightforward. I just find that the, uh, the doing it from the bulbs is just so much easier. Now, there is an alternative to doing green onions, and that is to grow chives. The fun thing about chives is that they're a perennial, so they will come back for you every single year. As a matter of fact, I dug up two chive plants that I had at our first farm. Uh, when we first started growing, I planted these things, and I had harvested off of them, and then I dug them up, and I threw them into these really weird sort of grow pots that I had. They were, I don't even know what the material was. It it was very bizarre. It wasn't plastic, but it wasn't fabric. And it was supposed to be this sort of, I don't know, living medium. I don't know what it was, but uh, I dug them up and I threw them in there and I brought them with us to the new farm. And I, I think for three years, I didn't get them planted. They were just sitting in these weird pots and they came back year after year after year. And finally, now they are in their permanent home and they have started to sort of spread again in their own little raised bed. And I mean, I can harvest, that's one of those first things that I harvest in the spring is those chives. Now they have a similar flavor to green onions. They're slightly thinner. They're, they're more in line with scallions, but even a little bit smaller than scallions. Uh, but they are perennial and they come back and you don't have to really mess with them too much. Plus you get chive flowers and I do all kinds of things with chive flowers. When they go to flower, you can use them in salads. I put them in vinegar. I will soak them in a mason jar full of vinegar and make a chive vinegar, which I turn into a very, very yummy honey chive vinaigrette. It's fabulous. Um, so chives are a really good alternative to green onions, especially if you use a lot of them. And like I said, they come back year after year. You can pull them all season long. In fact, they love being cut back because they will just send up new ones all season. So there's a, a good option for you if, uh, if you want something that's a, a little bit um, lower maintenance. Okay, that's it. So between you know what, between the two of you, Jenna and Teresa, I'm going to give you both a Clyde's Garden Planner because I really liked both of those questions and uh, I'm just feeling generous today. So uh, Jenna, I will mail yours. Teresa, I will probably drop yours off at your house with your next share. So <laughs> look for that in your box. That is it, my gardening friends. Thank you for joining me this for this month's uh, episode of uh, Can You Dig It? This was volume three, and this is actually episode 29, I think. So we're really ticking along here this year. Uh, I hope you will come back and join me again for our next Garden Talk Tuesday. That is going to be a follow-up to last Tuesday's tomato episode. We'll talk very specifically about trellising and pinching and pruning 
why you should, when you shouldn't, how to do it. It it took me a really long time to sort of get the basics behind that. And so we'll dig a little bit into that. And then next Friday's episode, we will get back to preserving the harvest. So in the meantime, I hope that you are having a fabulous week. I hope you have a fantastic weekend in the garden. And I will talk to you again soon. You've just listened to another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. Don't forget to download the episode after you've listened, rate and review us in your podcast player if that's an option, and follow us on Instagram at Just Grow Something Podcast. All these things help gardeners like you find me and hopefully join the Just Grow Something family. Don't forget to send in those gardening questions through a voice message at the link in the show notes or via email to grow at justgrowsomethingpodcast.com. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden and I will talk to you again soon.